Hello and welcome to another edition of Barbarians at the Gate. My name is Jeremiah Jenny, broadcasting high above the Dongzhang district of Beijing. With me, as always, my fearless, intrepid co-host, David Moser, out of quarantine, in the wild, COVID-free. How you doing, David? <laughs> Good. COVID-free. Uh, COVID-free. I, I, I may be intrepid, but not fearless. Uh, I have a lot of fears maybe we can cover today in the podcast. That sounds like a whole episode oh, unto yes, itself. Right. The 20th Party Congress is over with, and uh, so now there's a lot of questions. Well, we've got someone who maybe has some answers, but more importantly, we've got somebody who is all the way from Yunnan, the wilds of Yunnan, former Beijing resident, writer, editor, based in China since 2008, Alec Ash. How you doing, Alec? Doing pretty good. Thank you for uh, inviting me back uh, into your august residence, the uh, the emperor of Dongchang. Um, <laughs> the emperor of Dongchang. And I can't wait to uh, delve deep into David's... Uh, deepest fears. darkest fears uh by the way uh we this is your second podcast with us and the first time was one of our earliest ones uh and uh it was in the deepest darkest covid uh era uh and we were all sort of it and uh, so i would advise uh maybe listeners could go back and listen to that because that was also very interesting and it might cover some we, and we did one before that uh, Yonks back like a, like a decade ago. Yeah, we had a whole different lead singer back then. Okay, it's almost like listening to Iron Maiden before Bruce Dickinson. Yeah, but we do have an, we do have one of the uh, OG podcasts with Alec too, talking about oh, yeah, the May Fourth movement. That's right. Yeah, that's uh, the humble origins. Very, 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 very humble, and they haven't really expanded all that much of late. But Alec, what's it like to be back in the back in Beijing after three years down in Dali? Right. So I, I, I left Beijing in 2019. I, I, I had the seven-year itch, um, and I escaped to sequester myself in the mountain valley of Dali for the last three years, kind of hiding out from the pandemic and, and such forth, which was, which was lovely. Um, but I am back for a fortnight now, and it kind of feels like uh, returning to see an old, really fun friend who used to love uh, drinking on the street side and to discover that he's become like a crazy germaphobe teetotaler. That's, <laughs> that's, that's the general vibe I'm getting from, from Beijing. No, you were down You're not the only person who's escaped from Beijing to go to Dali. One mm -hmm. of the things about going down there is you run into people, both um, expatriates and of course, you, you know, and, and Beijingers who kind of quit life in Beijing. They got tired of living in the big city, got tired of all the, the capital bullshit. This is even before COVID. And they kind of migrated down to Dali, kind of like this sort of like key west in the woods or in the <laughs> mountains down there. And there's some really interesting personalities down there, right? Yeah, that's that's actually been the, the main project I've been working on. I've, been, uh, I've just finished the first draft of a, a new book out of Dali, which is about these new migrants who are escaping Beijing, Guang and other big cities and uh, coming down to Dali. And I found it interesting that China had, had reached that uh, kind of point in its development where people want to uh, get away to their equivalent of you know, Tuscany or upstate New York for the middle class or just you know hide away for the hippies. Um, and the cities, even before COVID, I felt were becoming quite uh, unlivable. And it uh, clues into the other trends like uh, Tangping and Jiu Liu and all of the kind of pressures of city life that people are escaping from. So it's almost as if this sort of 150-year journey after the Industrial Revolution, or well, 300-year journey really, um, in, in Europe has been sort of compressed. And now we've already reached that late stage in China where people 
um, have, have after 40 years of moving to the city have realized, yeah, I actually don't like it so much. And uh, there's this reverse migration. So in Dali, um, in the village I lived in, which was uh, in the foothills of the Tsang mountain range, uh, I think I met in the in the entire valley someone from every single province of China uh, and, and a fair few gringos as well. And uh, they were all there after stints in Beijing and Shanghai and so on. And the, the COVID pandemic has really been a catalyst for that just in the last um, months. I met so many who were just out of Shanghai the moment uh, lockdown lifted. Um, a couple of them are just living just grabbed their tent and ran and they're just they're still living in their tent in a field <laughs> um, outside my village so that trend interested me that people were getting out of the cities and kind of finding a little bit of a mouse hole from the state uh, Dali has a long history of attracting uh, slightly more counterculture people a lot of artists and, and in fact a fair number of dissidents have played there since the since the 90s and now it's becoming a little bit more uh, bougie because there's, there's more middle-class people getting out of the cities and moving in. It's, it used to be just a straight-up hippie town. Um, but I think everyone who is going there um, is looking for something a little bit sort of off the grid um, to, to escape the state a little bit, uh, and that fascinated uh, me. And so the for anyone, any listeners who've been to Dali, of course, it's a, it's a tourist destination. So you go to the, to the old town, which was really developed relatively recently actually around sort of 2014 15 unlike Lijiang um but but you go there and it's just you know an exercise in elbow sharpening but the the new migrants uh, we all live out in the villages peppered around the valley so my village Silverbridge um is about uh, six seven clicks north of the of the old town and these are the the Baizu the bi-ethnic villages oh. uh, all, all around the valley mm. so uh uh, you say off the grid, and, and presumably these people, as you said, are counterculture types, so they actually like like to be uh, bereft of some of the, the daily sorts of tech, yeah, technology yeah, yeah. that we swim in. Uh, but what's the logistics of moving out there? Because here, I mean, in order in order to be a citizen or be a resident of this country, there there are there are so many uh, you know uh, categories that you belong to that mm. involve. Uh, either reporting your information or them keeping track of you and so on and so forth. And also things like, uh, you know, uh, Jeremiah, I assume, is renting this apartment. You know, we bought ours and this is very bureaucratic and uh, it involves banks and all sorts of access. To, so how, what's the, if you want to make a move to, to Dali, these, these people, what is, what is involved in actually settling down there as a human being in, in this environment? You do have internet, obviously, which is a. What, what else do we need to we, talk we have about? In, internet and electricity, <laughs> right? And, and water and everything. Um, it's re it's relatively simple to to move. You got to you know uh, do a little bit of paperwork, I guess. But um, I think it's it's more that financially for most of the Chinese people who are looking to relocate, it's um, difficult to to earn money in Dali. It's less of a, a pretty non-existent economy down there. So there's, there's a few people who go there as Shuzi um, Yomin, the digital nomads mm -hmm. and freelancers. And uh, then another variety who would sort of sell there. I knew one guy who sold his uh, his whole life in Shanghai, his, his flat, his car, everything, um, took out a big loan and then went to Dali to open up a, a kerjan for, for, for tourists uh, also out in the village. So it's, it's, it's possible. It just takes a little bit of uh, kind of will to uproot yourself like that. And then... The, the, the old sore about 
uh, kind of border provinces like Yunnan is that the the mountains are high and the emperor is far away and 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 now that you know the mountains aren't so high anymore and the emperor isn't that far right. away uh, um, the Xi Jinping actually visited in 2014 um, and you know said uh, a couple of words about protecting Arhai and that sent the the whole valley into a tizzy for the next uh, five years so the, the 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 state still knows where you are there's no real escaping and, and like all Shangri-La it is it is a fake utopia but uh, but relative to Beijing it's been it's been very jarring being back um, because for, for the last uh, three years like, so I got to Delhi right before the pandemic hit which was perfect timing because I basically escaped the whole thing uh, and then coming back to Beijing now um, you know I got on my first airplane in three years um, uh, last week, had my first COVID test in three years, which amazingly I survived three years in China without a single one of those. And, um, you know, for the first time I'm s sleeping somewhere which doesn't have uh, the sound of rats scuttling overhead. <laughs> and, um, feels Honestly, just the transition back to sort of city life feels a little bit weird. Well, I think Jeremiah's apartment here has the sound of rats occasionally. You could, if you want, you could sleep here. Okay. So these are these are people who are of a little more, uh, you know, mm. class-wise, people of means. Sort of, you don't pick up and move unless you have the wherewithal to, to do that. Well, that's a new breed. Um, it was it, it used to be hippies with no money who, mm -hmm. who would go there. Ah, okay. You know, um, or, or sort of penniless uh, artists. It's it's really just in the last five years that the the middle class have started to. Uh, hit upon Dali and some other places as as a destination. But you say the f you had the first COVID test in three years. Yeah. This is I inconceivable to <laughs> someone like us. Where I have a COVID test every day for the last three years, it seems that's off the grid. That see, that's uh -huh. the kind of thing I'm talking about. That's that's quite astounding. Yeah, my my tactic was uh, very simple. It was just to not leave Dali in three years, uh, and I was very comfortable up there so i just figured ha, ha, I'm, I'm good here and you didn't need to show a jen kong body in her every store and, and, and every building no uh, yunnan is relatively <clears throat> relaxed uh, or it certainly was on covid measures and then i noticed that change really quite recently actually of, was, uh, over this last year and i think i think that's been nationwide as well right that this third year is mm -hmm. stricter than the yes, first yes, one yes very much so yeah. and i think that's because it's sort of really taking time to trickle down to the lowest level right. of government in this kind of game of um, telephone or Chinese whispers, as we say in Britain, where like they've got, got the message that zero COVID, but it's been exaggerated to the point of, of farce. And, and that's, that's trickled down to Yunnan as well. So before I uh, left, I did a final uh, road trip uh, in my little beta uh, up the three parallel rivers. This is the upper stretches of the Salween, the Mekong, and the Yangtze, and some, some hiking up in in the Tibetan areas, and um, that that was a real wake-up call uh, because every kind of hundred, or a couple of hundred kilometers, uh, or, or often just whenever I entered a new kind of xian, I would have to take a take a COVID test and uh, register, and just you know they look at my passport and ask a few meaningless questions and then give it back, and so so you know even out in the sticks, the the, the measures have, have made it there, and. Um, you, you could always kind of tell, I could tell when a county I was passing through had a very, um, had a cadre who was um, shooting for a promotion because it was, uh, you know, very, very strict um, kind of regulations in that particular place. So it's, it's really, it felt very hit and miss. Um, and, I, and I think that that's something that people 
out of China miss how how localized the COVID response has has been, mm. um, and it really just depends on you know the the the, the leadership of a particular place you are, and um, it's and it's just a, a whole gamut of um, you know how 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 strictly enforced these things are. You know, one of the the idea that there are large large areas outside of the cities where you don't have the same kind of testing infrastructure like we do in Beijing, some of the other big cities where they can force people through the apps to test every three days. So you imagine that there are areas, you know, rural areas to be sure, but areas where people aren't getting tested every day. And one of the things about that is it, it does, it, I, I'm, I am suspect of the people who are suspect of the COVID numbers in China, this idea that China is somehow hiding like millions of cases, and that's, that's obviously not happening. But I also am a little bit suspicious of the numbers that are being produced right now. First of all, they, they, are, they are strikingly similar day to day. If you take a look at them, it's like 175 symptomatic cases, 650 asymptomatic cases. The next day, 178. Right, mm-hmm. symptomatic cases, a hundred uh, six hundred and thirty-eight. It's almost right. like they're they're picking numbers within a range. Right, and even if those numbers are accurate and reflecting of the reports that they're getting, it mm, does suggest right. too that there may be areas that they're not testing, and these areas could possibly. And again, they're rural areas, and there's less population density, so there's less danger of spread. But they could act as reservoirs, and it yeah. that makes more sense to me than the fact than the idea that people are catching COVID from imported ice cream. Mm, right, which is the standard narrative, or usually. fish, fish, yeah. Like, <laughs> so yeah, it's a, that that's I think that's a, it's an interesting it's yeah. an interesting perspective coming from out of, from out of the big cities where we just feel so inundated mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. the testing infrastructure every day. I did want to I did want to go back to 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 Yunnan for a moment though, and one of the questions I had was you know I I grew up in an area uh, northern New England in the United States where a lot of this is there's a certain similarity to this. You know, since the 1960s, and even especially in the last few years, a lot of people have moved out of the cities up to northern New England. They, mm. you know, find farmhouses. They find they kind of get back to the countryside, and you know, it's good for the economy. But it does change the character of some of these villages and towns, and it does, you know, result sometimes in conflicts of lifestyle, attitude, land use, all of these, you know, any of these issues. And you have people coming from different backgrounds living together. I was wondering, from the perspective of the people who are, you know, from Yunnan, or I should say, mm. who have been there for a couple of generations or more, you know, how have they adapted or reacted to having a sort of successive waves? First, the counterculture element, yeah. then the bougie element. How have they reacted to this in in that part of the country? Yeah, well, I mean, the the, the back to the land movement in in Yunnan and Dali and places like that obviously rubs up against the people who are still there. Um, my village, like most of the other villages, is mostly by this ethnicity, in particular to that region, and and you know they've seen a lot a lot of changes over the last uh, twenty years, uh, and, and one of those changes is just that more cash is flowing into the valley, um, and you know these people who used to be farmers and are now all working in construction. So so on on that level, there's there's more opportunity and they welcome it, but then you know culturally <clears throat> at the level of village interactions. That there is a little bit of a, a kind of um, bit of a bamboo curtain between the two, between the the new mm. the new arrivals and and, and the residents, um, and and mostly conflict free. But you know, there's 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 a few stories from from uh, friends' villages and so on where where the two uh, kind of collide, uh, and so I think it's you know inevitable that there's um, you know so, some areas of of conflict. It um, 
it, it's it's also just sort of transforming the you know the look and the fabric of these villages where the, the these old farmhouses which you would buy as a you would rent as a as a fixer upper for, for you know 10 20 years for uh, a friend got one for 5000 quite a year uh, back in the day uh, and then in the same village there is a boutique hotel for for, for urban kind of holidayers and there's a room there which goes for 5,000 quai a night. So that's <laughs> 365 times more expensive. So, so you see a lot of those juxtapositions um, in, in, in the valley as its character changes. Maybe a little off the subject, but does marijuana grow wild there? I've had many people tell me that. It does grow wild in the hills. <laughs> and, and some of the counterculture elements go out. This is, this is harvest season right now, so you want to... You want to hop on a flight, David? Yeah, yeah. When are you going back? <laughs> we used to. We I used to take students on uh, the, you know, the the study abroad excursions to Yunnan, like maybe twice or even sometimes three times a year. And you know, there's a sort of a tour, there's sort of a route that we would always take, and it would involve things like Tiger Leap and Gorge and Dali and 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 you know, it's inevitable as the students are walking through the backcountry of Yunnan, they start looking around and looking at all the plants around them, and you're like. Is this what we think it is? I'm like, yeah, it, it is what you think it is. It's not great, but it is what you think it is. And it's been grown here for, you know, centuries, if not millennia, mostly just to make rope. And you should probably think that before you start, like, trying to harvest some of it. Oh, and the locals, you know, true hemp seeds just as a snack, you know, and, and they used to smoke it just to relax in the evening. So, it's yeah, it's been part of Dali it's, culture for It's basically just Cao Yao, you know. I think they should right. incorporate it into Chinese traditional medicine. Let's, let's, let's do it. Californian traditional yeah. medicine. Yeah. So now that you're back in Beijing, have you had a chance? You, you know, you're, you're working on the book in Dali, but your first book, Wish Lanterns, which followed the lives of a group of young people in the city and was a BBC book of the week back when it was released. Now that you're back in Beijing after three years, have you had a chance to catch up with any of the subjects of your earlier book and kind of update on, on what, they're, what they're doing now? Yeah, so um, there are two of the six characters who I profiled in, in that book, uh, which came out in 2016, and then there was a, a paperback release, re-release in 2020 under a new title. Um, so, you know, the, 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 the youth of Beijing is not, not quite so youthful um, as, as they once were, and perhaps the same goes for me. <laughs> but uh, uh, it, uh, the two remaining characters in Beijing, for those who've read the book, are Lucifer and Fred. Um, and both of them I, I caught up with while I'm here. Lucifer just got married, um, which surprised me, but he's, he's settled down. He, he met her 28 days ago and married her 19 days ago. So, you know, so could you just, good luck uh, to him. just to, to refresh our memory uh, of Lucifer's base? He's, he's like an aspiring uh, rock star mm-hmm. um, who, who goes on the sort of the TV reality shows, and he was a frontman of this band, uh, Rustic, from the, oh. from the D22 days. Um, and, and he's, he's still uh, pursuing that uh, dream, but, uh, you know, set, settled down a little bit. And then Fred was the uh, daughter of a, of a, of a party official, a party party official in uh, Heiko who's, uh, who's studied in Cornell and is really clued in and kind of politically switched on uh, and was always quite uh, nationalistic uh, on, on the left of the Chinese political spectrum. And it was really striking when I caught up with her because she's become quite um, pessimistic about the state of Chinese politics 
um, which is also the case of her professors who are on the new left in China, like a Pan Wei. Mm. Um, and it was it was interesting to note that those formerly, you know, quite pro-straight uh, nationalists on the new left who were always, you know, less particular particularly aligned, you know, just by default to the party, but it was just a sort of a nationalistic stance. Those, Fred included, are now quite quite grim on on the on what's happening in China now with Xi Jinping, mm -hmm. uh, and quite you know she was quite outspoken actually uh, about it. Yeah, well, this is something I was kind of curious about when we when we found out we were, were able to do a podcast with you. Uh, this this is interesting because this generation, which is now obviously not the young generation, this is like the, uh, what we were ten years beyond. Uh, yeah, millennials. Yeah, so they're right, they're as yeah. to Gen Z. Um, and these this is a very diverse people, a diverse group of people that you you were in, interacting with and getting to know pretty well, hanging out with, and they all had different kinds of dreams, different kinds of attitudes towards China, different kinds of imagined futures, and so forth. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, I know you haven't kept in touch with with all of them, but given the the new kind of uh, trend of what they, what they call runxue, uh, you know, mm. run, yeah. runology, like how do we get out of this place? And I'm wondering, has that fever hit that ge particular generation? The people that they thought that they were going to be developing, pursuing their dreams here. Yeah. But now mm. maybe the, 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 especially people who disenchanted with, with Xi Jinping, mm -hmm. the, 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 the sort of, the sort of uh, atmosphere is to get the hell out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so th that, um, that's what interested me in my current project, that people are getting out of a city, and that's also been the case with, with the kind of the, the migrants to the city who I profiled in Wish Lantern. So you say run, runology, runshe, also includes well, I, just escaping. Yeah, I think it's internal. I think it's yeah. domestic as well as, as, well as in, uh, yeah. international. I mean, you probably wouldn't use the, the character run for it, right. but um, of, of, the, of the six, the other four have all left Beijing. So, like, Snail is a classic story of a first generation of his family t to go to university. You know, Cao Cao's into a, a university here and, like, tries to make it. His family are thrilled. He's so excited. And then it's just a struggle for 10 years. And finally, he has enough to buy a, you know, apart from, like, way out and kind of sixth ring road. And he, he just doesn't like it. And, he, and he's back in Anhui, where wow. he comes from, you know. Mm. And Dahai and Xiao Xiao left as well. And, um, uh, so it's 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 quite striking how um, you know even ten years ago I feel like the story was just like you got to get to Beijing you know to make it now I think there's this alternative narrative of get out of Beijing. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's kind of discouraging that not just for for them but when you when you combine uh, Tangping and um, Runxue and all these different things. People are either withdrawing from their their jobs or their studies, or from the course of you know moving in the direction of education and, and mm. job and family. They're retreating from that in a sort of a passive way. People domestically getting out of the big cities and trying to find you mm. know, getting off the grid, so to speak. And then people that that ha that can afford a plane ticket and have the means mm. just get out completely. Mm. This does this does not speak well for, for the future of China. Yeah, and, and the brain drains coming back. Yeah. I fear. I, th I think there is a real disillusionment uh, happening uh, with the promise of a decade ago that uh, there was upwards mobility, and if you migrated into the city, uh, you would have a better future. But there's no right. there's no prospect of Foucault reform in the next five ten years. There's um, uh, a lot of disillusionment with o over time and work culture here. 
uh, and just you know the financial difficulties of city living, and then for the for the upper echelons, there's just disillusionment with China at all, and 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 concern about that, and so that's why there a lot of the people who I've been catching up with in in Beijing as well, um, yeah, they're, they're they're looking at options of getting out of the country. Speaking of running, mm. mm-hmm. one of the I'm reason- out of here. <laughs> one of the reasons why you're in Beijing is because you are you are scheduled to take a flight out of the motherland back to England, right? Yeah, but I won't be running. I'll be backing very slowly and carefully <laughs> into the airport. Scanning codes all the way. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, t- so tell us, Alec, why, why have you decided now after um, so many years to, to make the move, not just from Dali, but to make the move out of China and on to the next adventure? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just time. You know, there isn't there isn't much to say. So it's actually ten years exact. Facebook very kindly informed me since I got off the Trans Siberian. So you know, I've I've, I've done my decade, and um, and then before that, I did uh, two years in Wudalco, but that's not China, right? That, that Wudalco, yeah, that's, right. Uh, um, uh, but 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 over those, like I mean, like, so so to answer with a bit of a sort of wider perspective, uh, I'm I'm classic Olympic wave migrant to China, like the generation. After you guys, basically. By, you mean the 2008 Olympics? Is yeah. That what you mean? Okay. Yeah. Uh, no, the 1973 Olympics. I thought maybe you, I thought maybe you were lo- a, run- a runner in that sense. Of it. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, I'm 120 years old. Uh, <laughs> uh, so 2008 was when I first came to, to, to live here because it was just so exciting. You know, wow, the Olympics, uh, it's, it's opening up. And I think at that time you could still go on YouTube and there was mm. uh, like all of the explosion of blogs. It was Chinese language blogs as well as, you know, uh, all of the English language ones. It was just a really exciting time. And and so for a fresh-faced, you know, 22-year-old, it was just like, hey, let's come here. Maybe there'll be a color revolution, you know. Uh, And it was just vibrant and exciting. And all of these musicians and artists were moving into Beijing. You know, it's 10 years later, it's just not that anymore. To be honest, you're not saying, I did my 10 years, it's time to move on. It's it's it sounds to me like if if not for what you just uh, the litany you just gave, that you would be con- you, you would be one of these people that would never consider leaving because there's so much for someone like you to do, and now you're sort of saying, ten years and and it's it turns out that, that a lot of what I was pursuing are now dead ends or not worth um, pursuing. Yeah, I mean, uh, or do you think you can do something better outside of of this uh, this place without the restrictions? Yeah, I mean, it's it's mostly me leaving as opposed to being pushed out or anything. And Not I, I don't pushed wanna... out, but just that that the attraction that you just described is as I we yeah, we've so talked about this many times. It's, yeah. it's changed, <laughs> and the attraction, and also the the feeling that you can immerse mm. yourself here and actually not only witness it and write about it, but also somehow mm. also be a part of it. That dream is kind of uh, crumbled. Well, it is. It is. Oh, David. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Alex. I'm sorry. Alex, he's got the tears coming out of his eyes right now. <laughs> David is projecting. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I don't, I don't want to sort of be sort of, you know, moaning about it because I, I don't, I don't feel that way. I still, honestly, it's been great being back in Beijing and, and my, you know, uh, people are still here. And I think that culture that I loved when I first got here, I think it's still here. I went back to my old Hutong district, which is, and like everyone's still there and it's like they're hibernating, uh-huh. you know? And, and, and um, 
this is why I think that pers perspective is always the most valuable commodity in a in a China watcher, which is why when I got here, <clears throat> I I hit up you guys because because mm -hmm. you've been here, you've you've seen the things that I only read about, like the the early noughts or the nineties. You were you here in eighty yeah. eight, yeah. right? So the the cycles of Fang and Shou, and <clears throat> and I'd love to hear you guys talk about this, but um, um, you know, eighties as opposed to nineties. Um, you know the crazy noughts as opposed to what we're going through now. Um, it's 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 normal to have these these waves, and 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 the city and the and the country will survive it. I I, I do feel like we're in a in for the long yeah, run right. with, with this one, probably ten years minimum uh, of in this you know cycle of increased uh, tightening. So um, it's not that I'm like despairing about the the sort of the, the, the long term future of right. China, um, just the short term future. Yeah. Uh, and I think that uh, it's uh, like. It's it's a good moment to get out. I think we just saw the coronation of the emperor, and you know this this very sort of illiberal new um, standing committee. So, uh, and and my my guess is that the next five years are going to be uh, authoritarian and boring, mm -hmm. which which I think is a, a tautology rather than an oxymoron. <laughs> you know, very good point. Uh, right. um, I I don't think anything really exciting is going to happen, and and so maybe that's why I'm choosing to leave. I I feel like. Um, um, I've sort of had, had had my fill in a sense, and I'm not sure um, if if anything really sort of thrilling is going to happen in the next five years. But you guys, let me know. Well, you ha well, you have a you have already have a lot of time here. You have a, a lot of experiences there, and you're a writer and a very good one. And you have a new book, uh, which you can obviously do outside of China, and, and presuming that you still have access to come back and go back and forth freely. You can still do these kinds of things that you you would you would normally do, but uh, yeah, uh, it it seems to me like it might be the case at this point that there is need for people like you outside of China, uh, who are able to uh, write, to publish freely, to actually also meet a lot of the interesting uh, people who are have taken advantage of the possibility of runology to get out. I mean, there's a lot of very interesting uh, what would you call them at expats or uh, people who have who have fled the coup and are, are now overseas and are also very interesting people and I, they're part of the Chinese they're part of this new trend mm. uh, the, the, the changes in China right now and some of those are really interesting to, to meet yeah and, the, and, the, the China outside of China but I uh, think it's so valuable to have people still here though this is why I love your podcast you know of, of all of the of the China pack because you're, you're here and you can just like a little um, dash of just common sense of like, hey, this is what it feels like. Um, and then from the outside, it's it's so easy just to, um, you know, exaggerate your worst fears or everything. Um, so it's 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 also a shame, you know, to be leaving. And I do hope that I'll be able to to, to visit, um, hopefully regularly uh, in in the future, just to sort of keep my ear close to the close to the ground. But I'd, I'd love to turn turn the mic on you and ask the same question of uh, the, that wider perspective that you have of living here. In, in the 90s and early noughts, does that give any new kind of insight into the period that we're in now? Because from my perspective as the Olympic wave, that was actually the moment when it started yeah. to go go down. And I've witnessed that decline. But what was it like for you? You kind of said it when you were, we were talking about that era. You know, it was a time when things were new and exciting and there was lots of new ideas coming in and we were waiting for a color revolution and mm -hmm. all these kinds of things. And, you know, that era, um, you know, the whole vibe of those aughts is so 
became something that the current hardliners could rally around. Like that is what we are trying to avoid. Mm. And so a lot of those attitudes, whether it was being too lax about information, being too, being soft on corruption, you know, over the last, as we, as we, as we, as we have witnessed over the last 10 years, you know, the, the screws have been tightened and those are the places they've been tightened the most until finally, you know, the last vestiges of that, you know, those aughts are being led stumbling out of a hall in front of everybody and mm. deposited in an antechamber. And as somebody who has been led by the arm out of establishments in Beijing before, I can only have sympathy with Hu Jintao and his... <laughs> <laughs> rather public removal from the premises but it does I mean, whether he's sick or whether he said something snarky and was asked to leave whatever it is it was that visual i think really i think he just had too much to drink didn't he and there's that's enough that's enough fujing tao well, i mean maybe maybe that's he, maybe he also thought that 4 30 in the morning was the perfect time to order <laughs> another bottle of jack at the den but be that as it may, I think it, that vi that visual really kind of encapsulated just what you're saying, Alec. That you know the next five years are are going to be an interesting time here, but probably not interesting in the hey, this is going to be really yeah. fun to write about. Yeah. More like interesting, like holy crap, what else can they possibly? Mm -hmm. What else can the, the the Chinese government possibly do to remove nice things from our lives? Mm. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with all of that. That's my feeling, too. I think of that period as what was special about it. That was a special time because we had a space mm. in which we could function and make direct contact, as you did with your book, for example, mm. just yeah. unrestricted contact, really, yeah, just hang out. And, get, and hang out and get lots of material from them, interact with them, see their, their social context, um, and to be able to... Uh, uh, Post things on the internet that wouldn't be immediately caught up, translated, and 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 you know, mm. brought back in a strange loop back into the interior. There was a safe space to write write about what was happening here, to send it out uh, overseas publications and blogs, and to be both a reporter in a certain sense, albeit a feral one, but also um, a participant. Mm. And what Jeremiah says is right. Now they've. That space that we valued and which made that possible has collapsed, has has shrunk to 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 basically. And, and people uh, are know, more wary of, of people are more to you people often. are more like wary. They they won't. I mean, probably if you tried to attempt a similar book today, you'd have run into a lot more mm. problems, right? The point is that um, it's not that we it's not that our interests changed or anything, or, or that not even that China is. Uh, less interesting now that's the point china is if anything as interesting or maybe more interesting in some ways mm. but we don't have the space to freely explore that and to uh to do anything about it so yeah it's, it's I mean, sad. it is a shame that there's there's been this uh, exodus of people actually actually based here and i i do feel a little guilty to participate in it even though i think i, I feel you know excited to keep to be moving on but um so I, I run, I do this uh, bi-monthly books roundup column for Wire China, and um, China books really have been dominated now by yeah. red cover, gold stars, um, written from I, yeah. DC. 
Those are great. I've seen your, yeah, those things are very interesting. Like book covers and the whole thing you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So. And um, so, you know, there's, there's few kind of reported books anymore. I mean, Surveillance State was, was, was great, but, but also based on reporting, which is, you know, two years old. Um, and this, because there's just less people on the ground here. And, and I think it's really, it's noticeable and it feeds into this kind of, I think, sort of incorrect echo chamber um, around yeah. China on, on Twitter, where I just like read these comments uh, and it's like, it's well-intentioned and I know, and I know what they're reading and I've read the same thing. And it's, it's, it's like, they're sort of seeing China through this sort of like weird prism from abroad and they have this idea of what it is. And it's, it's, it just feels almost, but not entirely unlike what it actually is you know it, it a lot of what i research I, I do a lot of research in the archives in terms of uh missionaries and things like that and one of the one of the things that happened in the 20th century was that you know in the 1950s and 1960s when there were very few people in china who could actually report what was going on here you know what you ended up having was a lot of people who had been either in china in the 1930s or you know, up until the Japanese occupation or had been there during the Civil War in the late 1940s. And then later on, we're still kind of the China hands because of their experience in China before the revolution. And certainly a lot of experience in country, a lot of language skills, all of that. But you, you read some of their writings on like trying to explain like the Great Leap Forward or the Cultural Revolution. And of course, they're, it's exactly what you're saying. They're using paradigms from a very different era of China. And it's not quite like that today because of course, a lot of the people who are writing about China from outside China were here far more recently. But you know, if, if, if someone's China experience is China post Olympics or China in the first term of Xi Jinping, like 2012 to you know, 2017, that's a very different place than we're living in right now. And you know, I, I agree with you. I, I see some very sharp and incisive commentary on Twitter, in newsletters, in the books that are being published, but I also see some things too that I, I feel are shockingly disconnected from what's actually happening here. And I, I think that's only going to increase, and this is the whole information asymmetry thing that David and I are, you know, have practically made a fetish, and the, uh, you know, that this is only gonna be a, a, a problem yeah. as more and more, not just people leave, but more and more people who have an ability to explain this country mm -hmm. through mm -hmm. writing, you know, for example, who, like someone like you, Alec, who've written books about it, you know, there's there's the next Alec Ash isn't necessarily going to say, hey, I really want to sign up to go live in Beijing. <laughs> they may want to go someplace else in the world. And that's great. That's another place that will be, you know, someone will write about. But for China, I, I don't know where that's coming from. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I think on one hand, the the boys in Zhongnanhai are probably thinking that's not such a bad thing after all because no. we don't want to be studied. Mm -hmm. that's but, right. but if the goal is to tell China's story and China's stories and all their amazing and wonderful and messy, complicated and beautiful facets, mm. you know, that's part of it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a shame. Well, there's a lot of rival stories and, you know, um, directly oppositional stories floating around as well. One thing I found noticing, interesting here is that for a lot of uh, Global South reporters covering the party congress um, and a lot of them sort of kind of in on, in on junkets um, and give quite glowing interviews. Uh -huh. and they, they become like almost like right. the new breed of, of useful idiot. I don't want to you know, this to be ad hominem against any country or anything, but um, I think that's a trend. And so you have these like two opposite stories playing out 
um, out there, but but the fundamental problem is the same, which is that most of it is is based on you know publicly available uh, information, and then there's just like so many smart, incisible takes based right. on that information, but it but it's it's just lacking the sort of the, the humanizing element of like well what what does it actually feel like or uh, or just that simple question of hey what do Chinese people think mm -hmm. about it which which seems to get lost. There's there's another issue with the, with uh, with uh, information in, in terms of state media. Mm -hmm. Back in the in the Olympic times and before, there was such a thing as state English language state media, and the goal was the same, which just was to tell the China story, tell good, tell interesting stories, to, and so it was you know always about propaganda. That that edifice now is enormous and well funded and multifaceted and very technologically advanced and very professional in terms of anchors and production values and everything. Mm. And the the kind of thing that, that that Jeremiah was talking about and that we, we've been talking about of the kind of thing that sort of information that we would produce and be available to the outside world and, and the inside and inside China. That now that the Chinese have uh, this this very powerful uh, propaganda tool, media tool, and they're very jealously guarding that space. They want mm. that to be the messages that go out there, and they're able to sort of uh, co-opt uh, any foreigners who do come here and want to do something here mm. that are friendly to China, and they immediately get media space, they immediately get sometimes even money. The, mm. the, the, the state media actually yeah. you know, supports yeah. them, yeah. and and so they, they sort of collect these China-friendly foreigners who become the kind of the, the voice of, of that they want to put out of foreigners talking about China, mm. and the other voice of during the feral Sinology days when you had China hands who were long timers here who had been here a while knew it very well and could write, that's what seeped out to the outside world and mm. had and had an impact. Nowadays they want to control that space, brush all that aside. So Jeremiah is right. They're, I think they're very happy. And there's, a, there's such a noticeable disconnect between that official narrative and what was just so blindingly obvious to me when I landed in Beijing and, and really quite surprised me, which is that people are fed up, you know, cabbies are fed up, uh, a lot of my old friends are fed up, the, the bar owners who had to close this week and they couldn't do live music because apparently, you know, listening to a guy on a guitar is antithetical <laughs> to the chaps down at Zhongnan High. Um, uh, you know, people saying that it's uh, going the way of North Korea. It, it's really quite noticeable that kind of vibe on the on the ground. Um, but but you know, I will say that um, while the the exodus uh, continues, um, I, the the impression I got from from the city being back for a week after three years uh, is is not that it's uh, dead. It's that it's gone into hibernation. It feels like a city which is just kind of frozen over a little bit. Uh, like Hohai in the winter, and it's just waiting for spring to come. And my old, you know, Hutong area, they're, they're still there. They're still living their best lives. Actually, they said that the COVID pandemic was, was great for them because the priorities of the government changed and that they no longer bothered to tear down their illegal um, building in the in the Hutongs. So, and, and, and then, you know, some of the intellectuals and the artists who are choosing not to leave, they're, they're just going to wait it out. Uh, and they'll still be there on the other side. So I don't want to be too apocalyptic and maybe kind of end on a slightly more hopeful note that winter will end. Well, on, a, on an even more hopeful note, let me just ask, and I probably am doing this from a place of a certain amount of envy. When you get on the plane, 
and you fly back home, do you have any immediate plans for things that you're going to do when you know, you're know you back in the land of capitalism, liberalism, and you're third prime minister in a short amount of time? <laughs> well, um, I'm returning to England, and they've, they've asked me to be prime minister, um, so I thought I'll give it a go. Um, a, a nice uh, a warm pint of beer and some bangers and mash. Um, I, I feel so disconnected to, to England, though. I, I don't know if, if you feel like that back in the States, like everyone else, yeah. I haven't been there in three years and it, it just feels like I have no particular connection to my uh, homeland anymore right now. But uh, it'll be interesting to reacquaint myself. Well, crumpets and scones. You yeah. know, when the when the new book comes out, Alec, we're gonna, we really want to get you back on the podcast. Hopefully you're, you've come back to China a little bit yeah. by then. Things have opened up. The uh, ability for academics, scholars, journalists, people can come in those kind of person-to-person -person contacts that build bridges and help world peace are restored. Let's live in a little fantasy <laughs> bubble. <laughs> Yawn. <laughs> I'm trying to be optimistic, damn it. Okay. But, uh, but uh, if, if that doesn't happen, there's always Zoom. So thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, David. Thank you. All right. And thank you all for listening to another episode of Barbarians at the Gate. We'll talk to you again very soon. And cue the drums. <laughs>